This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I am on location for this episode of the podcast. I'm taking my first plane flight since uh, the whole COVID shutdown 15 months ago. Fully vaccinated, been fully vaccinated for a couple weeks now and uh, feeling more comfortable getting on a plane. And of course, the first place that I had to go uh, as soon as that travel was possible is Bellingham, Washington to come uh, sit down with uh, Mari and Will Kemper of Chuck and Brewery. Welcome to the podcast, Will and Mary. Thank you Thank so you much. much for coming out here and being so brave. <laughs> well, I, you know, I was telling Joe, um, you know, this was the reason we built a whole trip around it. And we we're talking to a few other people on this trip, mm-hmm. too. But uh, the idea of, of coming up to Chuckanut and uh, drinking some lager with you right here at the brewery and picking your brain about lager brewing uh, was just too exciting to pass up. And so, nice. uh, you know, naturally, I'm not going to pass it up. <laughs> Great. We're so happy about it. And uh, we've had a little Kolsch and now we're drinking some Pilsner and uh, we're going to uh, continue to drink some beers and talk about the the um, ways that uh, Chuckanut brews excellent and compelling and multi-award winning vloggers, <laughs> 24 GBF medals by my count, five World Cup, uh, World Beer Cup medals, um, you know, and a whole host of brewers that we've also talked to here on this podcast, uh, like Kevin Davey from Wayfinder and uh, Josh Freem, obviously mm-hmm. Freem, uh, have all come out of the, the yep. Chuckanut uh, program here. And you've turned out some other great alumni brewers that are yeah. making fantastic lagers uh, all over the place, too. So yep. um, I cannot wait to talk about, uh, um, you know, the in-depth and focused way that you approach this, um, methodical, uh, as we might expect from someone who is a chemical engineer, um, the way that you've even constructed uh, the brew house to execute the beers in exactly the way that you want to execute them. Before we do that, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. New this year, redundancy meets efficiency GD's micro-channel condensers are built with all aluminum construction, which eliminates galvanic corrosion. Using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer braised connections translates to a lower GWP and less opportunity for leaks. Call GD Chillers today to discuss your project or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by BSG Hop Solutions. Meet the latest in BSG Hop Solutions portfolio, Sativa. Strong expressions of stone fruit, floral, and resinous pine flavors and aromas define this blend, crafted specifically for use in hazy IPAs and other hop-forward beers. Sativa is ideal for aroma, whirlpool, and dry hop additions to hazy and juicy IPAs, or for any other hoppy styles where a combination of citrus, tropical fruit, and pine aromatics are desired. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more or call 1-800-374-2739. So, Will and Mari, uh, give me the quick chuckanut history, uh, that were, uh, and I guess the quick brewing history, which then segues into the, the, the chuckanut history. Um, it's a long and storied one that spans the globe. I don't know that we can compress it into the time that we need to, but uh, um, give me the, the Cliff Notes version of that brewing history. Okay, we started, we went through it, and here we are. <laughs> 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 so we started, um, actually, Will started as a home brewer in Colorado. Yeah. In Boulder. Um, unfortunately, to my suggestion, which he followed, you're so interested in drinking beer. Why don't you have a hobby like brewing beer? And so Will started brewing. Yeah. And that was in the mid 70s <laughs> and then we moved to the northwest yeah. and we eventually started thomas kemper brewery on bainbridge island which is right across from seattle and that was 1984 when we got that started right. um and then we ended up leaving kemper and heading to the east coast where will became a brewing consultant he put in the first dock street brew pub he worked with weeping radish he worked with Lowell Brewing. He put in the first Capital City Brew Pub in Washington, D.C. Right. And then our non-compete was up. So then we moved <laughs> back to the Northwest, and he continued to consult with a bunch of people. 
he started working with a group out of Oregon. What was the name of that, Will? Do you remember? Uh, Beers oh. Across America. Yeah, Beers Across America. And um, he worked on several different breweries, which was Aviator Ales in Woodenville, Norwester. Uh, was it Portland Brewing or yeah. Portland North, Brewing? Norwester. Norwester Brewing in uh, Portland, Oregon. And then down to California with... Um, Orange County Brewing and then out to Denver, Mile High Brewing. And he was overseeing all those breweries sure. and that kind of fizzled. And then after that, I think that's when he started working with a group from Monterrey, Mexico. And we went down to Mexico, Monterrey, uh, where he put in the first two brew pubs in Monterey. That was about a year and a half. Then he came back. Then he, he was also teaching at the same time brewing engineering for the... Yeah. American Brewers Guild. Yeah. Right. And uh, that's when they um, sort of suggested to this group in Istanbul who wanted to do a brew pub, can he come over and do a <laughs> brew pub for us? So we thought, well, that sounds like a good adventure. <laughs> so we went to Istanbul, Turkey for about six months. And then um, when that, they really wanted us to stay, but we wanted to come back because we were trying to do something on the Mississippi River up in Dubuque, uh, Iowa. <laughs> that never came to pass. Um, anyways, he continued consulting. Right. Then we went down to Tucson, Arizona, where his family lives, Will's family is. And then uh, we tried to get something going. Yeah, that didn't get going. And then we were asked to return to Istanbul to do a craft brewery. And it was a three-year project. Huh. So we ended up taking on that and went to Istanbul for three years. And Will created the craft brewery for them. And then we finally thought, we need to go home and start our own brewery. <laughs> so, you got tired of doing it for other people, and yeah. now you need to yeah. do it yourself. Yeah. And so then we came back to Bellingham, where we owned our house for who knows how long right. already, but hardly lived in it. And um, <clears throat> that's when we decided to do Chuck and Up Brewery. Yeah. And then what year did you that launch Chuck That was uh, 2008, late July. And then the financial crisis happened two, <laughs> two months later. So right, we right. were like, oh, my God. Not only that, but we were doing mostly lagers and some ales. And right. they were German ales and all European-style stuff. But the neighborhood didn't want it. They, they would come in, ask for an IPA. We said, we don't have an IPA. They would leave. Yeah. Well... You know, that's what happened. <laughs> and we continued to persevere. We won all kinds of awards. We won uh, first Small Brew Pub of the Year, 2009. And then two right. years later, won Small Brewery because we couldn't sell enough beer in our brew pub to be called Brew Pub. We became uh, a company because we were wholesaling. And then that was in 2011. We were Small Brewery of the Year. And then, you know, we just continued, we persevered. Um, and in 2016, we built a production facility in Skagit County. And that's what we call South Nut. Right. And that uh, brewery uh, was made for production. Hmm. And we are talking with the port now to expand that and include a packaging house Okay. where we have plans to can. Cans. Now tell me, we <laughs> will try to send you your cans, but we are starting slow. Um, so we won't have a cans, I think, too fast, but we will have cans in the future. Well, the idea of more and more chucking up packaged beer out there in the world in the market uh, is an exciting one, I think, for uh, yeah, for all the lager lovers out there. Um, you know, and of course, you're known for lager brewing and, and yeah. for German styles, you know, of beer. That's certainly something that you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm excited to talk about, uh, you know, how you have just built everything from the equipment to tanks and an entire system. Uh, you know, to, to brew specifically brew yeah. those beers. Um, let's talk about that in a second, but first the most common complaint about hard seltzers, they need more flavor extract alone is a weak flavoring agent and can leave a chemical aftertaste, but there is a better way. The craft concentrate blends from old orchard are packed with real fruit first 
No added sugars and just enough natural flavor. Breweries are turning to Old Orchard concentrates for seltzer with more body, color, and aroma. Turn seltzer skeptics into supporters with seltzer that drinks like a beer. Get started at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, for years, Brewery DB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information. In 2019, over 1 million brewery visits were made by craft fans searching for breweries on brewerydb.com. In just a few weeks, BreweryDB will unveil an all-new experience to help craft lovers get back on the brewery trail. To take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of BreweryDB and increase your taproom traffic, set up your account on marketmybrewery.com. That's marketmybrewery.com. It's easy and it's free. So you decided to launch Chuck and Nut here in Bellingham, Washington, right here on the on the water. Beautiful location. We're socked in with fog right now, which uh, uh, just feels so Washington State to me right now. Um, coming from Colorado, where uh, it is a, a lot of drier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, but uh, you brought this intentionality to the brewery itself, knowing that that you were going to focus on loggers, um, and at the same time have built a brewery that doesn't necessarily adhere to the kind of typical yeah. German dogma of lager brewing. <laughs> um, it takes parts that you find effective and it leaves other parts aside that you don't find as effective. Talk to me, Will, about how you um, started thinking about uh, designing this brewery, knowing that uh, you know German style uh, lagers are what you wanted to brew. Well, uh, I think it has been an evolution of that as far as, you know, the question to get to this spot. And for me, you know, once again, my background, chemical engineering in particular, that is key as far as our approach, I feel, because it's a, the manufacturing aspect, the engineering aspect, how things are done. That is, uh, you know, the, the craftsmanship behind it, the chemistry behind it. The chemistry is what it, it is. It's the evaluation, the analysis. So fortunately, uh, I think it's fortunately for me, I put the two together quite nicely. And so having to develop breweries over the years, it's a, it's a matter of seeing what was available and reading, reading and getting as much information as possible. These times are very different than the 1980s and 1990s where there was no internet. And so I got to a point where trying to get as much information as possible and it just wasn't there. But what I did find then, it really stuck to me. And so it's been an evolution to get to this spot. Now, this spot is wonderful because what we do, it should be an evolution. It should be an advancement. Everything I feel I've done has been an advancement toward this. And hopefully going forward, it will continue on that same thread. What's the point otherwise? Because the bottom line is good beer. Yeah. To be able to sit around and drink beer that you like, that's the idea behind the game. Yeah, you make a living at it, but be able to have a, a product that you really, really enjoy. Well, I've been fortunate. I've had to travel all over the world for beer and taste beers, evaluate beers. And for me, the beers I personally enjoy are the beers we produce. Now, that's me, and I understand each consumer, each individual has their own setup, their own preferences more power to them but understand what those are and address those as opposed to being told what you should or should not do that's important otherwise you're not true to yourself so over time chuck and Nut has a, as far as the equipment and production you know we we're continuing but once again it goes back to what you know way back there where just just primitive primitive tools for example for example when we when we start thomas kemper there weren't there weren't brewing equipment manufacturers, so sure. we had to improvise with dairy equipment and things right, like that. Right, right, Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, you know, and we did okay. But understanding, well, what are the what are shortcomings? You know, if you if you're aware of things, you realize what shortcomings are and how you can address it. If you're aware of things, as far as you know, we were talking about whirlpooling. We we're talking about whether in a kettle and things like that. Well, get that information and figure out. Okay. How do you use that for the best, for the, for the betterment of your product? That's really the focus. To be casual and say, okay, I accomplished the task at hand. No, that's not good enough. You have to accomplish the task at hand exquisitely. 
So let uh, that's fantastic. What, let's talk about some of the unique approaches. I maybe shouldn't say unique, but some of the ways that you have customized your brewing process in order to uh, accomplish the kind of uh, you know brewing yeah. and kind of chemical or you know uh, accomplishing the chemical processes that are necessary to create the yeah. beer that tastes the way that you want uh, you well, know, to brew it. Yeah, well, one thing I think, as I said, I feel I'm fortunate in that my background is really conducive to that. And when I say that, it's like, I'm a brewer. That is my function. I'm a brewer. I manufacture beer there. Now, as a brewer, what, what I'm getting at, though, is that is that how you accomplish that are you work with your tools, the equipment, Oftentimes, brewers kind of kind of give in to engineers for equipment. But on the other hand, engineers dictate to brewers how things should be manufactured. Well, I understand both aspects of it. There's no way in God's creation am I going to have a non-brewing engineer tell me how I should make beer. <laughs> and that too often is the case. And, and for a lot of people, you know, that, sure, they might sure. have to accept that. But for me, and it's, you know, and I'm open to conversation, but when somebody says, well, well I think we should do this, Will, and I say, uh, no, I, that doesn't make sense. I think we should do it this way. Well, there, fortunately with me, there's not much of an argument anymore because I can convince po folks because I have that history. I have that understanding. So it's working with the understanding ultimately to get you the tools. And our tools are our equipment. So if your equipment is deficient, um, it's like trying to paint trying to paint a wonderful masterpiece with a broad, broad stroke brush. You can't do that. Right. You can't right. do that. What, um, let's, let's start on that kind of, you know, uh, you know, first mash process. Yeah. Um, how is the system that you have built? How would that vary, you know, from, um, you know, say a, a more kind of standard out of the box, uh, you know, brew house. Well, if you ask on the mashing in particular. Yeah. So, um, for example, and, and, you know, how many steps are in brewing? I don't know, 5, 10, 15, 100? I don't know. But if you ask me mash, okay, let's focus in on mash. And we use a process here in our mashing, and it's referred to as temperature program. So what happens is we have capability of hitting enzymatic steps, the desired enzymatic steps, with our processing, our heating. And by the way, all heating is done with low-pressure steam for temperature considerations on melanoidin, impact, blah, 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 all that good stuff. So we optimize, I feel we optimize the mashing routine in that what is the objective? What is the purpose of mashing? It's conversion of the starches to sugars. So it's a matter of efficiency and accomplishment. Now, by the way, sometimes malt can have variability too. And so that's another reason why by hitting these in a technical sense, we're able to accomplish the task at hand as far as as far as mashing. So besides hitting the enzymatic, and then we go up to, to, to mash off temperatures, which reduce viscosity for transferring all that good stuff involved in the process. That's, that's our mashing routine. Now, can we do that with single infusion? I say, yes, we can. Would there be a difference by itself? No, there would not be. The product would be virtually the same. It wouldn't be perceived as any different if we did a different mashing routine. However, that's just mashing. So as we were talking about before, if we took out, now let's talk about the kettle, let's talk about you know going into fermentation, let's talk about everything else within all those myriad of steps there. Each one of those steps is of a similar consideration. By itself, no. But obviously, most definitely, if this isn't taken in whole, the beer would be very different if we didn't have this approach. So it's not just that that mash itself produces it, but it's what that mash sets up for the next step and the next step after that and the next step after that. And each, yeah, there's so much interdependency on brewing from the first, the raw materials, you know, the raw sure, materials sure. are going to impact the last step, filtration or whatever right. in there. And there's interdependence there. So it kind of goes back to the old saying, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And that's it. That, right, so you right. look at each step and try, what is the function of each step? What is the function? What is the purpose? If you're a decent brewer, you should know what the heck you're talking about. You should know what that purpose is. And if that's the case, then try to 
evaluate that, analyze, be objective with whether or not it's done correctly, or if there are issues, what goes on. So it's that understanding behind each step. So in that mash step, you have you actually have built out a fully automated system or mostly automated system um, that can tightly control the yeah. operation of this system, and and you know you've been operating it for a very long time now. Um, when you step mash, uh, are you does each recipe get a different step mash? Are you uh, you know do you think about how each one of those steps in that step mash is going to impact each individual finished beer and right. change those and dial those in for each specific recipe? Okay, now you asked me a question as and and as far as a, as far as a statistical consideration, I'm going to say 95 percent are going to be the same. Okay, yes, there's going to be a slight variability sure, <laughs> sure. changes there, so there will always be the exception there w- within that, and um, um, so and and why why we also want to do have, have you built it that way. It's specifically to work with the you know base malt and primary malts that you use because you know they will work out that in in that specific way. Well, or? not not so much the malt themselves, more so the technical consideration. As I said, look at the step. What has to be accomplished? So if you're looking at the malt, if you and, and by the way, it also then goes to the style of beer, the style of beer, right. and we're set up to do our particular style, and we don't really deviate. You can't be all things to all people. And that's, you know, so we have a focus here and hopefully we do well with that. But uh, um, but I wouldn't say so much the, the malt, for example, we get wonderful malts in which I think are yeah. some of the best malts in the world. They have variability over the years too, not as much as hops. But the point is you have to understand that as well. So if you have a system that's capable of, okay, we can address this, we can adjust right. accordingly, then we can adjust accordingly. If you have a system that is cannot adjust uh duh you're set yeah <laughs> um are there any particulars to your step mash uh you know regimen that might vary from a typical kind of step mash uh, routine well one once again you know getting too involved in the mashing aspect um the mashing looking at that is that is that yeah, I'm going to go back and say, yes, we could have done a more simple type of mashing. We could do something else and it will accomplish the, ta- the task necessary. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind because what I'm getting at is, 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 is that um, we try to focus in on, on optimizing what we're trying to do in that particular step. When you talk about mashing as well, you have to realize that there's a history of malt. There's a, and that's significant in all this consideration here. Modern malt is wonderful, wonderful. It has such positive enzymatic capability that you can have, you know, you don't have to be so right on to accomplish the task at hand. So, you know, if you want to talk about decoction and things like that, yeah, there's a, you know, which we were, there's a reason for that. There's a reason. There are temperature considerations for that with, with very uh, inferior malts, inferior malts back in the 18 and 1900s. When that was the case, right, they had right. to address that. We don't have that same setup. It's it's much more positive. So you are not you don't decoct, um, no. but you can accomplish the flavor goals using yeah. you know the, and, the method that and you have. This might be you know my personal opinion is I feel this is better than a decoction because what happens is when you look at at beer, you evaluate flavor. Flavor is too casual of a term thrown about. They're positive and negative flavors. And more often than not, the difficulty and, and problems with beers are negative flavors that impact the very subtle positive flavors. And that goes in you know, virtually um, um, yeah, in any beer. So decoction, what happens here is that it was a purpose for something, but now you're also introdu- introducing some aspects as far as high temperature impact with your mash and working with that and they do have potentially now extract various things with temperatures undesirable temperatures duh as a chemist that goes hand in hand if you don't understand chemistry and and how things you know come in solution you're in the wrong game and so that's you know so it, it's a it's a lesser of evils of having to do that, but from my perspective, the potential, the potential, and and you know, are we talking about parts per million, parts per billion type of tasting? 
I don't know because that's never been evaluated. But I do know that if you have high temperature impact going on the, on with your process, you will necessarily extract. Example, why don't you make coffee and you just boil the hell out of it? Because you have you start extracting bad stuff. Mm -hmm. So look at a similar consideration here. You definitely do not want to go that to that extent when you're talking about uh, mashing decoction in particular. I'm just going to intercept here, sure, but sure. Um, a lot of what we do is being very sensitive to what we're producing. So we gently send the beer through the piping to the next vessel. We don't rush it through. Um, every step is very gentle and sensitive because it's a sensitive product. It, and that uh, Will, Will and I have talked about this yeah, quite a bit. It, you know. It's called uh, shear forces, shear set. And, and it's like, it's almost a, a point of almost irrelevance because it's so slight. Well, we consider it. And, and it's something that, that, yeah, so what Mario was talking about, variable speed motors, everything is on that, for example, to make sure that we don't, right. you know, we lessen any potential impact of shear stress. With with a lot of these loggers, and especially with this kind of you know decoction history, that little touch of kind of Maillard richness yeah. or or slight bit of color is often seen as a positive in those. Do you accomplish that contribution in your lighter loggers in a different kind of way? To to yeah, that, um, that's an easy question. Of course we do. <laughs> of course we do, and that's the beauty a, of modern malt. Right, right yeah, over the plate, I appreciate right the softball. Yeah, no, that. That is it. So it, the beers, you know, so you start with a base there and you work from that. And and the beauty of modern malt, you know, you can get specialty malts in particular. And and so they have these, these uh, tasting coloring characteristics. For example, Vienna Lager, a wonderful copper color beer. But if you use Vienna malt and Pilsner malt, you're not going to get the color. So essentially, you know, what caroma, uh, uh, black malt, whatever you use. But the point is you need to add the color for that to make it a true Vienna, Vienna lager to qualify in, in that particular category. So, yeah, it, you, just, you just work accordingly. When we were working in Mexico, so, so we were working in, with Guatemoc, and, and they're the brewery that, uh, that make uh, Dos Equis. And Dos Equis, especially Dos Equis Amber. And the interesting thing, we were working with some of that malt that came in. It was the most bizarre malt I, I, I got because they referred to it as caramel malt. But the malt coming in had coloring from pale to black. So the point being how they made the caramel malt there for that particular beer you know, so it was an average of coloring and they could figure out, you know, a color unit for that. But, but you know, as opposed to, okay, we, we all have 40 Lovabond malt or, or, or color malt, whatever we use. But no, no, no. It, it, it had the sensei from, from zero, you know, from, well, let's say five to 10 up to 400. <laughs> Interesting. But that was a, that, that's how... Beer brewing used to be done. That was coloration. That was a caramel malt used for that beer. How did they even make that malt? Or was it just pre-blended? Oh, yeah. well, uh, well, well, you're talking blended. about how do they make how do they make malt in Mexico? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of inherent in the question. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But it was is wonderful uh, working with those folks. Sure. And, and sure. The, so, you know, you move out of a mash process. Let's talk about, um, you know, uh, boiling yeah. um, because you've got you've designed your kettle and your yeah. brew house with some very specific concerns in order to produce the beers in the way that you want to produce them. Talk to me about some of uh, some of that design consideration. OK, yeah, we have some aspects within brew house besides a mash vessel that are kind of different. But before I continue on this, I also want to add one other consideration, and that is size size. So if you're making a uh, beer on a one barrel system, a 10 barrel system, a 50 barrel system, or a 100 barrel system, there are different considerations here as far as surface area to volume, all these things, they come into play. So we're able to, I feel, optimize our sizing. Our sizing is a, both a 10 barrel in Bellingham and a 20 barrel down, uh, down at South Nut. 
but but we use these the sizing and the consideration engineering to hopefully optimize what we do. For example, we have a combination whirlpool kettle. And a whirlpool kettle, why that is nice is that that means that we have one less transfer from the kettle into a whirlpool. And we after boiling, we can immediately go into whirlpooling. And that's an important consideration is, uh, because, um, uh, especially for lager beer, you have a window as far as how long you, c- you have between into boil and fermentation. And by the way, that window is thought to be about 90 minutes, according to Professor Ludwig Nartzis, as a, his information. And so work with the, these ideas because you have wort degradation after that. So from into boil to all, you know, start a fermentation with all your work. And so that's a consideration. Because we do not have a transfer we're able to immediately go in whirlpooling. So that, that, that takes away 10, 15 minutes right there. So essentially at the end of boil before then and into fermentation, we have a window of probably about 30 minutes. So we beat the hell out of uh, you know, that 90 minute consideration here. Uh, no, let me say 60 minutes because after whirlpool and then we have a transfer time, we're cooling. So 60 minutes. But the point is we still beat it. So we kind of optimize on that. Now, if we had what, a bit, what's the downside? What's past ninety minutes? Oh, ninety minutes, and what happens is, think in terms of cooking. Think yeah. in terms of cooking. Yeah. If you overcook something, what happens here is, is then, uh, then you start to degrade what you're dealing with. You start to, to, uh, you know, it just goes into sol- solution more so. And the thing is, what we're looking at once again, positive and negative, positive and negative flavors. We've already worked with the malt. We've already worked with that to extract, to get the positive flavor, positive aspects of it, which are essentially just the sugars for fermentation. We don't want to go past that. What's the purpose of going past? Well, the, what's, I don't know the positive purpose, but I can certainly see a negative purpose in that. So anyway, we focus on that. But what I was really getting at, though, is that the sizing has a lot to do with that. Once we start hitting 40, 50 barrels, there's no way that the combination system would work well because the design on a whirlpool versus a kettle are, are slightly different there for optimum optimum usage there. And, right. And so all that additionally with the kettle. More so with actually with the kettle because what happens is we don't have to have a calandria. A surface area to volume consideration with the sizing we use are sufficient to get good full rolling boil for isomerization. So that, you know, we're able to accomplish that. But as you get larger, you can't do that. You can't do that. You won't have enough surface area exposed for that true heating to have, you know, to have your full rolling boil consideration, whatever the heat transfer is. So you'll need something else, either an internal or external calendar. So you see, sizing is critical as far as optimizing what you want to do. That's interesting. And then you've also designed your element, you know, in the or designed the kettle itself to yeah. roll in a very specific, uh, you know, kind of way yeah. um, to produce the kind of vigorous boil or but gentle but vigorous boil well, that you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, what we want to do, and once again, looking at the the nature and the makeup of of that wort. You know, and and try not to harm it uh, with with high temperature. You know, so it's, everything's low pressure steam below below one bar. Okay, okay. <laughs> so you have variability there. Anyway, so that's how we're working. But but what we what I have here is that is that for example, our kettles here they have three steam jackets. They have bottom steam jacket. They have a three hundred and sixty degree steam jacket. And they have a hundred and eighty degree jacket at the top, which makes an asymmetric heating. Now, each one of these jackets are individually controlled. And I'd, a lot of brewers probably aren't aware, but they're, in the old-time breweries, there used to be somebody called a kettleman. And their function was to understand how a kettle works, you know, and working with that. Because if you're a brewer, you understand the nature of that boil differs, differs over time. And so it's a matter of adjusting for that differences and to optimize it, to optimize it. Yeah, you can put in controls. But you don't necessarily come up to optimal consideration with you, with your full rolling boil. Now the 300, 360 versus 180, the 180 on the top, so it's essentially half covered. 
if you have a 360 degree, what happens is you have your heating all the way around and you'll, your, your heating will tend to create foam that goes up in the center and you really can't accomplish it. So what happens here is that by having the 180 degree, what happens is on one side, it will tend to fold over and you'll have that true rolling boil consideration. Now we do this because then it's a, then it's a matter of isomerization. And classical isomerization is a, in a brewery is in a, anywhere between 15 to 35%. Isomerization from the alpha acid, right. 15 to 35%. That's a damn big range. And why there's such difference <laughs> is you don't yeah. have proper mechanical action. The temperature is the same. It's boiling the same. So what makes the difference in, in the efficiency? It's the nature of that full rolling boil. And so the idea here is to accomplish that, that full rolling boil. Yeah. And then on the Whirlpool side, you've yeah. uh, you have a two inlet Whirlpool that yeah. you've custom built into that kettle and fought with your engineers <laughs> over uh, to accomplish another exactly. specific purpose yeah, of that. Yeah. And it goes kind of contrary to a con traditional uh, Whirlpool design. By the way, before I continue on Whirlpool, I want to point out there's a professor from the Weinstefan, Professor Denk, D-E-N-K. He devoted his life to Whirlpool, it seems like. So if anybody has ever ever had any questions about Whirlpool, he has all the considerations there. So Professor Denk, D-E-N-K. And so take it from there. But anyway, so our Whirlpool, what happens is if you look at a Whirlpool consideration in order to make the circular motion, what happens is you have a, uh, you have a, 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 a tangential entry coming in into your, your vessel there and to create this Whirlpool effect. Now, this is a height diameter consideration as far as what an optimum pumping and all that good stuff there. But conventionally, it's just one. So usually whirlpools are rather shallow, are rather shallow in order to accomplish this singular tangential entry. Well, our, our kettle whirlpool combo is, slight, you know, is slightly high as far as a height consideration. So what we've done is basically going into the tangential, we split it and we come into two, two tangentials, one, one above the other, one you know, about a foot above, something like that. In a technical sense, if you look at the analysis of a whirlpool, it, it, it will show you a force profile. And this force profile is a parabolic curve. And what that shows, this parabolic curve is essentially the force associated with coming into the vessel. So what we do here is by splitting it, then we essentially extend that force profile so we make it taller, if you will, and lower. Well, why this is important then is the idea here is to get all the work in the whirlpool effect. If we didn't split it like that, then there would be areas within the kettle top and bottom in particular that wouldn't come into the whirlpool play. They would be kind of outside the force profile. So by extending this, what we do is we put essentially all the wort in the profile. So all the wort in that kettle is being whirlpooled to get the effect of the whirlpool. I love this masterclass from Dr. Will Kemper here on uh, on brewery design. Um, and I'm going to we're still on the hot side and have even gotten into the, the cold side of lager brewing. Um, we told I, you it might take a while. I, we're I, old people. I love it. I love it. Let's uh, let's talk about that. Uh, you know, moving moving out of the boil before we do that. The founders launched SS Brewtech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design performance and quality to the very highest standards in the industry with a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing. SS Brewtech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head on over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Also, when it comes to brewing, nobody has your back like Clarion because their food grade lubricants are formulated to help make your brewing system 100% food safe. That means when you switch to Clarion, you can put the costly potential of contamination and recall out of your mind. All you need to worry about is brewing great beer. And since you already do that, well, it's more like focusing on business as usual. Go to ClarionLubricants.com to learn more. So, yeah, Will, let's move out of out of hot side into okay. cold side. Talk to me about how you care for that uh, wart now coming out of the kettle and moving uh, to the fermentation cellar. Um, 
well, the the idea here is to get it to to proper start of fermentation temperature, and making lager beer. So we start our our, our beers at at forty eight. 48 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit, and we go up to uh, 54 degrees Fahrenheit as far as the ceiling, and then we'll keep it there for fermentation, and then we, we do a diastole rest at the end. And by the way, I think a diastole rest is a wonderful thing because, you know, obviously the reduction of diastole is the main intent, but what happens, though, is it kind of gives a bit of oomph in your fermentation. The idea of fermentation is attenuation attenuation and getting the desired end result that's really an issue that's really the issue but um but it is so so important that your yeast has that performance that performance and so while we talked about we're all that good stuff it is so yeast dependent so you can do everything right but if your yeast is um, deficient then then your beer will be deficient too when you talk about yeast, and uh, it's really, you know, how that organism is, and think in terms of of what we want to accomplish. I I, re, I kind of refer the, to this as a game, and so when I say a game, it's like you know you have this yeast. These are your players. You want them to perform. Well, think in terms of football. Do you go out on the street and find 11, 20 people just off the street to play football for you? No. Well, yeast population is more than just population. It is the nature of that yeast. It's a vigorousness. It's a vitality of that yeast. This is as important as, as most anything else. Like I said, it's a game. Once again, you know, I think in terms of football and you don't just want to have grandmas and young sure, kids sure. on your side. Put the best players on the field. Exactly. And so it's so important to understand the quality of that yeast and maintain that yeast. And for us, we, we, we're rather strict on the sense as we use certain yeasts there and we don't deviate much because first of all, to give the yeast proper proper performance and justice, you have to look at, at what kind of, you know, what, what generation is, is it, for example, and how is that yeast coming in? Just casually using it and then throwing it away or not using it in an optimum sense. If you're not using an yeast in an optimum sense, the yeast won't perform in an optimum sense. And so that can be shortcomings with it within the beer. Sure. Are you public about the yeast that yeah. you use? What yeah, do you, we use thirty four seventy. Thirty four seventy for the yeah. it, for the lager. Is there for, a specific thirty four seventy that you find you uh, you like? Because well, we, there it, are plenty of brewers that yeah. will make an argument that not all thirty four seventies are the same. Oh well, each generation is the same. If you want to get truly technical about it, but 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 as far well, but I, as far as that goes, you know, I, as right. far as you have to, what do you control and what do you want to generalize? Of course, I'm going to say, Lord, let's go into you know submicron particles. Of course, <laughs> we don't want to do that. <laughs> well, I was going to interject that actually. Chuckanut has won a lot of medals, but actually our yeast has won a lot of medals because <laughs> right, right. we have brewers we give our yeast to who have won medals at GABF or yeah. other you know competitions. So it's kind of fun to know that those players are winning for everyone. <laughs> for sure, for sure. The, the ale yeast, though, is proprietary. Okay. And I don't know, if, do you know the history of that? No, no, tell me about it. Okay, so when we were in Istanbul, one of my, my assistant brewers, he actually uh, was trained in Cologne, Germany, and he came from Cologne. And he brought a yeast to, uh, for us to use in, and I thought it was a wonderful yeast. It was incredible. It's, I've been, we've been to Cologne and, and the styles of beer. Culture is, very, is quite variable in Cologne incredibly so it's a wonderful experience but the the culture we loved was very clean uh clean tasting that means you can sit there and drink it galore <laughs> like crazy that was, that was the intent so anyway this this brewer brought the yeast to us and we used it and when we came back and started checking it uh we tried to get the yeast in and uh there are just too many shipping and and regulations sure, sure. to get it in so Mari and I were back in Germany, and we made arrangements for from the brewing laboratory in Cologne, who who had that yeast, right. that they'd have a couple of slants available for us when we were in Bamberg, and uh, so we picked up a couple of slab, slants in Bamberg, and I carried one in over, and I 
went in the suitcase and uh, sent it to the yeast laboratory to maintain, and that's a proprietary state strain. We don't give that one out. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that one hasn't won awards for other brewers. No, <laughs> no. no. <laughs> um, you know, you ferment in conical tanks and, yeah. you know, you don't then do a lot of horizontal conditioning yeah. here. Um, talk to me about the way that that system works between fermentation and conditioning. Oh, I, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's. I'm just going to interject that Will uses uh very specifically the computer system with the temperatures and where the temperature probes are within the tank. Yeah, that, 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 that's a following, a, you know, a, a consistency of production as well. That gives you uh, information that you can use. Right. But as far as a unitank cylinder conical versus horizontal, I, I feel, you know, it's a superior system for our size. Now, if you talk about humongous systems, it might not be so, so well or you have to reconsider. But why I feel it's superior is, and by the way, it's based upon the yeast performance too, and the yeast flocculating out, flocculating out well. So what happens here is in a unitank, in a unitank for us, what happens is we understand that yeast and it flocculates out. And I'm insistent that my brewers remove that yeast after it flocculates out. It does absolutely no good once it comes out of solution, and it, and it can do a lot of bad. If you don't believe me, taste it. Taste it. And think in terms of, do you want that impacting your product? No. No. Uh, and so that's a consideration. By it's We're able to pull out the yeast. Now, historically... Historically, what happens is brewers going into lagering roof storage, and one of the main reasons is to get it off the settled yeast. So that's that's key. You got to remove it from that yeast. Now the other thing then is that by having a tank, a unit tank, you can do that in one one vessel. You now do not have a transfer operation. And when you include a transfer operation, you also include possibilities none of which are good. Well, that's another reason why I think it's a superior system, but it's based on making sure you farm that yeast out. You get it out when it comes down, because once again, yeast that's come flocculated out is does absolutely good for the beer. It's done, it's done its thing, and there are potentials of only negative things. So you are one single vessel for fermentation and lagering yeah. you know, conditioning and not ever moving that beer. I, I, yeah. I love the, the, I mean, I've the, talked to so many folks about this and everyone has really hardcore beliefs and oftentimes they're very different well, from each fine. other. And but, I love that, but I love that, it, you know, it's, it, you know, you have built a system that works for the beers that you want to make and you have optimized that around it and the concern that you're moving towards making sure that you're not adding additional oxygen or potential exactly. or shearing as you're moving things from tanks over outweighs you know, the kind of benefit of additional clearing that might happen by moving it into another tank, yeah. you know, for that dropout. And so it's just simply this matter of weighing which you want to be more, you know, which yeah. has the impact that you are trying to achieve. Yeah. that You know, once again, that, that transfer operation, when you move beer, you're now subjecting the beer to something else and it's not going to be positive, only negative. So what extent of negativism are we talking about? Sure, sure. Now, when you say, you know, you drop that yeast, what point do you then really focus on uh, getting that yeast out of the tank? No. Um, and then, uh, you know, is there any additional yeast, you know, flocculation after that point? Um, that as you're conditioning it, you keep watching that in order to, again, make sure that it's never sitting on on yeast, uh, you know, flocked yeah, well, out yeast. Exactly. Well, well, first of all, you know, it's a matter of harvesting within that. So, so after diastole, then we reduce it down to 35 degrees Fahrenheit is, yeah. our, our, is our customary routine. And by reducing it down at 30 to 35 degrees, then it will tend to, then we do the, then what happens is that yeast will flocculate. And by the way, this is another chosen, this is the chosen yeast. It's in solution. It's doing its thing. It's fermenting. Now we put cool, cold temperature on it and it comes down. That's what we want. We want the yeast to flocculate out. And so that is our middle cropping, and that's the yeast we use. Yes, over time, over different generations, 
that will change as well. That's a, that's the nature of yeast. But the point is, we try to focus in on desired qual- desirable qualities for yeast. So we will harvest that yeast out. And by the way, when we reduce the temperature, this is another thing that Chuckanut does, is when we reduce the temperature, because it's computer controlled, we reduce the temperature one degree Fahrenheit per hour. So we don't crash it right. because what happens is potential as far as a, a, a you know the term is yeast shock whatever it's a slight almost it, it's it's no big deal everything we do is no big deal <laughs> but we do it we do it because we don't want to impose any potential negative aspect upon that yeast we want to work with that yeast as comfortable as possible we want that yeast that we harvest the middle crop and then we go down to after it's harvested, then we go down into um, uh, true lagering. And so we is will... Log- the, be- before we get into true lagering, yeah. is there a, uh, you know, for this middle crop, is there a temperature point where now we're cold enough and now we start pulling, you know, from, or we dump it before and then we're, you know, we're pulling out of that, you know, since it, you're not crashing quickly or soft crashing. Exactly. Like, you know, is there a temperature where you start to kind of keep from? Um, well, what happens is during the course of manufacturing, you know, especially after you go into a unit tank, you want to make sure you clean the bottom of that tank out. Yeah. That, you know, that's, uh, uh, there's so much more truba than yeast in that. So you clean that out. And during the course of fermentation, you might get some flocculated yeast. By the way, you don't want that, that yeast. So get rid of it. And so then they, they gave a, up way too fast. You it, don't want those guys. <laughs> no. And, and during the course, and, you know, conventionally, as far as as far as my understanding is, goes back to, uh, I believe, something like seven times, you know, five to ten times more yeast is produced than you'll ever ever have to, assuming you harvest and repitch it in a similar type of volume. So you, the point is you have you have excess yeast there. But this is why the con- concept of middle cropping is so important in all this. What you're trying to do is you look at the yeast you want to subsequently repitch. And so that's what you're harvesting out. Now, after you've harvested, then you go in, then you go into cold condition. Yeah, you'll still have some yeast coming out of solution. Have I mentioned you want to get rid of that? Okay. So this is I kind of this, assumed that part, but uh. Okay, okay. Now now later on, then for example, we'll work this process and maybe maybe we'll work it on a daily situation for for the first week and such. Afterwards, when we're tr- truly into lagering, no, we don't have to do that. There's hardly any yeast that comes out yeah. of the solution. So so it's not that frequently. But yeah. Talk to me about the the lagering process. What uh, what are your parameters around that? Well, the um, this goes back to a lot of the consideration as far as um all right i guess we should also talk about tank geometry you know in these cylindroconicals are, are there some specifics that you've insisted oh, yeah. on uh, around you, that to optimize exactly the- there's something called angle of slide so what happens is is that if you work with a unit tank and your your tank is too shallow you won't have the settling of the yeast to the bottom thing you know this is kind of a, a a common sense type of thing. Think in terms of very shallow angle. And if uh, yeast comes down, it has surface temp- tension uh, on it. You know, is it going to settle to the bottom? No, you need a sharp angle. And so that angle, for example, the, the term is 60 degree included angle. So you have two, if you have too shallow of an angle, if you try to make it, oh, gee, I, it's, it's much better to have a 90 degree. Well, you don't, you have too much surface tension. And so you won't have the proper settling. You won't have the proper removal of the ease. So this is an important consideration with, with, for example, a tank design. By the way, many, many years ago, there was an old brewery called a Rainier Unitank. And so they did these in the thousand barrel situation. But what they did, though, so this is a very shallow tank, but it's interesting. Uh, Finn, Finn Knudsen. Oh, right. Yeah, He's Finn still used around in the here. industry. And, and so um, what they did was that uh, they had nozzles in the bottom of the tank and they used to be able to make a whirlpool by shooting CO2 into it so they would actually work the yeast towards the center by having that system. Well, you don't want to do that. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, so that, that's important. Um, so then, yeah, let's talk about that lagering process. Yep. What uh, what does that look like for Chucknut? As as cold as possible. Yeah. As cold as possible, because what you have is that uh, uh, you you work with that that um, 
we work with that temperature for yeast harvesting, but then afterwards, the day afterwards and after, well, after harvesting, then we do another routine as far as putting in a degree Fahrenheit and we, we chill it down to either 30 or 31 degrees Fahrenheit. Our lagers at 30 degrees Fahrenheit where we cold condition and the various studies through Dr. Nartsis in particular, yeah, the colder, the better. Um, I'm going to speak at the Brewers Convention about this more so, but a lot of the consideration is why is this better? Why is this better? Well, first of all, there's a physical characteristic of the colder you get, the more solids come out of solution. That should tell you something. So anyway, the colder you get is the most desirable. Our ales, by the way, are colds. We, we actually log at 31 degrees Fahrenheit. And why we don't do it at 30 is because it has a lower alcohol content and it literally starts freezing if we try to lager at 30. <laughs> interesting, interesting. What, how long do you lager for? Uh, we'll, we'll log, well, the total process will take anywhere between conventionally about five weeks for a beer. And so um, the, the, first, the first third time period would be for, for fermentation, let's say that. So we'll lager, you know, about a two to one ratio. Obviously, if we make a Bach or something like that, then it's much more extended. But for our regular beers, the Pilsners and such, you know, you can figure that. Well, and a lot of times the brewers will hold it longer just because they, um, we do filter our beer and it makes the filtering a lot easier right. the longer we hold yeah. it in the tank. So, Well, that goes, you know, it's a matter of, of filtration. It's a matter of solids removal. And the less solids you have in, the more easy it is to remove. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Now, you know, there's yeah. always production concerns. You got to keep, exactly, gotta keep yeah. the beer flowing, yeah. too. And yeah. so yeah. it's always... We're, we're all about the brilliant beer. Yes. Yeah. No, it's got to look good and taste good. The <laughs> bubbles. I mean, he didn't even go into the spunding. We're going to get there. Oh. We're going to get there. That was next on my list. <laughs> I think we need another show. But that's, uh, oh, we're definitely, we haven't even talked about recipes or actual beers where we've talked about uh, brew house design. So you're right. We're going to have to do another, another episode on this. Um, you know, but, but let's talk about that. Let's talk about that kind of, you know, finishing process. Sure. Um, you know, everything from that uh, spending to filtration and how that looks to help, uh, you know, produce that beer that looks so beautiful okay. in a glass. Well, Spunding, you know, it's a German device, and actually, it, it was put in. I, I I read something is put in in a in a uh, in regards to the uh, the Rheinheitsgebot in particular. So the right. CO2 so they didn't has, have to add gas. Yeah, it has to, to have right. come from a naturally fermenting source. So large breweries were able to you know capture and and clean up and and reinject, but small breweries they couldn't. So in order to address this, make sure you have CO2 in it. So the spooning devices, they're tricky as can be if you're not familiar with it. And they really are more appropriate for loggers because that's lower temperature situation. And there's a pressure temperature consideration with what you do. But all of our beers are, you know, we use spooning devices. So all of our beers have natural carbon dioxide within it. And uh, including the ales. Yeah. 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 Because we, we, you know, once again, we're able to, uh, by the way, our ale strain is done, you know, so it ferments at, at, at temperatures above log, uh, lagers, but lower than conventional ales. So that gives us the capability of spooning. If we did, you know, like a, a, a lot of English ale type or American ale type of thing, it'd be difficult because pressure temperature consideration for, for using spooning. But we use, we're able to do, use spoonding. Granted, it's really at the upper level as, as far as um, one bar consideration below, you know, so ASME considerations. Uh, but we're able to do it. The, the, the numbers are there. Concentration, it works. So why we do that is that the quality of carbon dioxide in the fermentation product process, making beer, is as pure as you're going to get. And secondly, you're not introducing another another form from elsewhere that you might be unsure of. Thirdly, what happens is by introducing that and how it's introduced can also adversely affect the product. So use a spooning, and so uh, and so the CO2 content of which, by the way, our, our beers vary between 2.5 and 2.7 as far as volumes, if you're curious, uh, depend upon the beer, um, we're able to 
use of the you know just natural CO2. So within the final tank, within the final tank, you have uh, uh, essentially the finished product. Yeah, it's about 0.1 uh, uh, psi higher because you go through filtration. Actually, about 0.2 because filtration then and then the packaging process. So the point is, it's a bit higher than the finished product because you lose CO2 during filtration and such. We filter we filter our beer and we use sheet filters because uh, it's a piece of cake and they're technically sound. And people who do use leaf coat filters, they know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> and, well, uh, they, they, they are recyclable. We put it in yeah, our no. compost. Huh. <laughs> but but anyway, so so they're easy to work. But but it's based upon getting the 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 sods yeast count. Because at that point, we're essentially just talking yeast. Anything else is irrelevant. But it's getting it down to a, a controllable, workable level. And this is important. This is important, getting it down to those levels. Because what happens is, is you look at a concentration um, and the capability of the sheet you use. So are you talking about a half million yeast cells per milliliter, 100,000 or a million? Well, 100,000 to a million, that means it's a tenfold capability. So if you don't get those yeast cell counts down, you're not going to be successful. You're going to clog up your filters. Assuming you get use filtration like we do to get brilliant beer. And when I say, and the filtration, for example, is um, I believe we're, we're looking at three to four micron size. And, and when people use that, the term um, filtration how you fil use filtration is something called nominal and absolute. And usually the term is nominally used. Well, by definition, nominal filtration is 90% of a test capability. 90%, not 100%. Absolute is 100%. So what you're filtering out, think in terms of, well, yeah, I'm using a three, five, whatever number you're, you're looking at, you're getting 90% out? Okay. Think in terms of, is that acceptable or not? So for us, you know, that we're able to use it. By the way, if we if we did, if we did even uh, more filtration, what would happen is we'd tend to strip flavor and color right. from our beer. Right. So we at a point where we just 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 remove the yeast to get to brilliance. Above that, as far as filtration, you don't achieve brilliance. You don't achieve brilliance because you have yeast coming through, and so that's a matter of, of yeah. So that's how we do it. Yeah, yeah. Are there any other finishing or packaging concerns that that uh, you're really passionate well, about? Well, well, the one thing for us is you know, kind of as we we're talking before, because we use spooning devices, we're not so concerned with with oxygenation coming in. It's a it's a positive a high positive pressure situation to begin with uh, using our product as opposed to having to inject CO two or right. working with that. So we're a bit more comfortable. And that's the other thing, too, is we're a small brewery. I can't afford to have a lot of other things going on here. So I think we're sound. I know we're sound technically. And uh, that's what we work from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've gotten in pretty deep on the technical side. We haven't, like I said, talked about uh, brewery uh, recipes or beer. Um, and I don't think we even have time to do that oh. now. So we'll have to agree to get into another episode at some point in the future and talk about some of those concerns. Um, you know, but we generally try to you know close the, the podcast and looking at some sort of, you know, big picture question. Um, you know, for you, look at you know, when you see the state of brewing craft beer in the United States right now, um, and you see what brewers are doing and have done and how, you know, even this style of brewing of lager brewing has over the last five or seven years started to really gain a foothold across, you know, the country, um, how does it make you feel? For me, it's so exciting because, um, when we first moved to Bellingham, like I said, people came in and then they left. They didn't want to drink our beer because we didn't make an IPA or an old style ale. Now, all a lot, I'm not going to say all, but a lot of the brewers right here in Bellingham have won GABF awards for their lager beers. And it makes us feel so excited because we feel we might have had a little bit something to do with that. Um, 
uh, and it's it's been it's been just very thrilling to me. It's so fun to map the spheres of influence. And so, you know, of course, when we talked to Kevin Davey on the podcast for Wayfinder and, you know, he, of course, talked about his experience here and how that imprinted on him and has made him the lager brewery that he is. And, of course, um, Swifty and Amos and Kim from uh, Austin Beer Garden Brewery have been big fans for a decade or more and picking your brain on on how to brew. And I, I love watching this kind of network of, uh, you know, influence. Um, but you definitely have the OG status yeah. uh, amongst American <laughs> well, lager brewers. For we're that. much older in all those. So in yeah. our history, <laughs> they'll, they'll do that as well. Yeah. For sure. For They're sure. Brewers. Well, well, thank you for talking to me about, uh, you know, your approach to lager brewing today. G&D Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Try Sativa and your next hazy or juicy IPA. Craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard are packed with real fruit first. Set up your account on marketmybrewery.com today. Let SS Brewtech outfit your brew house and gain peace of mind with Clarion Lubricants. Of course, if you'd like to support the podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, and if you're a pro brewer, consider the new All Access Pro subscriptions. Um, Will and Mari, if uh, people want to learn more about Chuckanut or drink your beer or experience, uh, you know, the beauty of Chuckanut lagers, where or lagers and ales, I should say, um, where do they find you? Well, um, we are here in Bellingham with our brew pub, and we are in Skagit County at the Port of Skagit in Burlington with our brew. Uh, that's our tasting room. Um, we're going to be expanding, we think, uh, to Portland, Oregon, wow. and having just a tasting or sure, tap room sure. uh, there. But, you know, slowly but surely, the thing is, we we're 13 years old this, this year, and so we do move kind of like the tortoise and the tortoise <laughs> and the hare, but... We're, we're, you know, we're doing okay. And um, it's just our... like you brew, you <laughs> slow and don't rush things, right? Yeah. 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 And, and um, our beers right now are just in Washington and Oregon. Yeah. Um, and we get requests from other parts. Sure, uh, it sure. will be, Will is going to be on a round table at the CBC this year. And so um, we're working with the Montana brewery that wants to do some event in um, Denver during the CBC. Mm -hmm. So our beer will go for that special event. Occasionally it goes to Pills and Love in Italy. Right, right. And down in LA it went. Um, So occasionally you find it elsewhere, but really it's, you have to come visit us in Washington or Oregon to get Chuck and a beer. It's worth the trip. I made the trip. (laughs) (laughs) And we're very grateful. Well, thank you all for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, Cheers. Cheers. Thanks so much. (laughs) This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.